Well, friends, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Psalm 121. Uh, we are finishing a brief two-part series, uh, meditation on this psalm. Uh, and if you remember last week, we looked at verses 1 and 2, where we considered uh, the Lord as our help. And today, in verses 3 to 8, we're considering the truth that the Lord is our keeper. And those are really two uh, pillars that can hold up our lives, especially when uh, the things above us, life itself, seems to be crashing down. The two pillars are the Lord is my help and the Lord is my keeper. And I pray that you would deeply know this truth. They would deeply be impressed upon your hearts. And that if you are in that time where you do feel like the things are crashing down upon you, that the pillars would hold you up. And that if you are in a time in a season of great blessing, that you would begin to sow those pillars deep into the ground now, so that when that time comes, you can withstand it with the help and the protection that the Lord offers. If you're able, please stand with me as an act of worship for the reading and the receiving of God's word. Standing is a physical posture of our heart's posture to receive the word with reverence. Our focus is verses 3 to 8, but I'll read the entire psalm. A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel would neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and join me in prayer once more. Good and gracious God, open up our ears so that we would be deaf to the things of the world, but eagerly listening and hearing what you might have to speak to us. Speak to us truth. And in that truth, comfort us. And in that comfort, Lord, help us draw near to you. For in reading your word, we're not merely reading uh, man's creation, um, but your very voice spoken and given to us. Bless our time now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson, a very well-known pastor and author, tells a story of how one day he was working on his lawnmower in his backyard. And it was broken, so he was trying to fix it. He was trying to remove one of the blades, and he was using a wrench, but it wasn't budging. And so he went back into the garage. He found the largest wrench he had. He locked that on, pushed even more, but to no avail. So then putting some engineering to mind. He grabbed a PVC pipe, a four-foot pipe. He kind of stuck it in the handle of the wrench to try to get some leverage. He pulled, and there was still nothing. Finally, in frustration, he took a rock and just began beating at the blade, but it didn't budge. Now, this created a lot of commotion. So, of course, his neighbor comes over and sees his lawnmower and recognizes it as one he had before. So he told Peterson, I used to have that same lawnmower. And as I recall, the threads on these bolts, they actually go the other way. And then much to his embarrassment, Peterson turned the wrench the other way and the nut easily came undone. Well, he tells this story in a book and then he writes this. He writes, Psalm 121 is the neighbor coming over and telling us that we are doing it the wrong way, looking in the wrong place for help. 
And I love how Scripture can do that. Scripture can correct us. It can instruct us. It can tell us that we're doing things the wrong way. Now, how does Psalm 121 do that? Well, it calls us out on our self-dependency. Psalm 21 calls us out. It exposes our vain attempts at trying to get through life by our own strength and power. It's correcting us, saying, if this is how you're living, you're doing it the wrong way. Now, the word keep appears over and over in this psalm. And that word keep in Hebrew can also be translated into the English as guard or protect or watch over. Now, it's interesting, the psalmist says that word again and again because he's letting you know, he's reminding you again and again, God is your keeper. God is your guardian. God is your protector. And we need to know this. We need to believe this because many of us, aren't we under the delusion that in life, we have far more power and far more control than we actually do. And so we try to run our own lives. That manifests itself in many ways. One, we worry far more than we ought to. We obsess over the things in our lives far more than trusting in God. And what happens is in the end, you live life far more atheistically than you wish, than you care to admit. Because you plan your life as if God doesn't exist. And then you worry about the things in your life as if he doesn't exist. And if he does exist, then he's the last thing on your mind. He's the last person you turn to. And so Psalm 121 is like that neighbor coming over and telling you, if you're living life like this, you're doing it the wrong way. Because if God really is your reality, then he's not somebody kept on the sidelines, only called over for consultation when you need to be bailed out. He is your very present help. He is your very present keeper, your guardian and your protector. Now, remember Psalm 121 is a song of ascent. And that means it was a song and psalm that the Israelites would recite on their way to Jerusalem as they went for their annual appointed feasts. And here's the thing, in the temple, why did you go to Jerusalem where the temple was? Because there God's, uh, God's glory showed up in the Shekinah glory cloud. God's presence was in the temple, was in Jerusalem. But God's presence was with the Israelites through the journey. You see, his glory was waiting for them in Jerusalem, but his presence was with them every step of the way. And the same is true for you and me. You and I, we don't make our way to God's presence as if it's over there and we need to get there. Rather, God is presently present with us. With us, guarding us, watching over us, protecting us. The question is, what might life look like if we believe this? I'm going to divide today's sermon into two parts. The first is saying the Lord is your keeper. And the second is believing the Lord is your keeper. So let's talk about this first one, saying the Lord is your keeper. Now, Psalm 121 has a very interesting structure. It's broken up into two parts. And you may have noticed it. uh, One, because we separated the sermon from last week and this week into two parts. And the first way that it's separated, divided, is thematically. We saw last week in verses 1 and 2 the theme of the Lord God, our helper. So we read in verses 1 and 2, from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. That's the theme of verses 1 and 2. But theme, the theme of verses 3 and 8 is that the Lord is your keeper. Six times in six verses, some form of the word keep or keeps or keeper is used of God. And so, okay, there's a natural division. But that's not the only division. 
Another division is the pronouns used. You have to be a careful reader, read slow enough in the Bible to catch this. But in verses one and two, you may notice that the pronouns are all personal. The first person personal. I lift my eyes. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He's speaking out of the first person point of view. But in verses three to eight, the pronouns change. Now he's speaking of you and your. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And the question is, why the sudden change? Why the change in perspective? Was he writing the psalm, got to verse two, took a coffee break, came back, forgot the person and the voice he was writing it and finished it the wrong way? What is happening here? And what we actually see can lead to one of two options. The first I think is wrong. The second I think is right. The first is, is the psalmist speaking to himself? We've seen the Psalms do this before, where the psalmist is saying something, I believe, I believe, and then he changes his voice. In Psalms 42 and 43, very famously, the psalmist said, talking to himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We saw it actually in the call to worship, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to his own soul. Now we do this, of course. You do this when you uh, are angry and you need to calm down. So you say, okay, calm down, calm down. You need to hype yourself up. So you say, come on, let's get it. And the psalmist could be talking to himself, but I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think that's what's going on because the context of Psalm 121 is that they are journeying to Israel or to Jerusalem. Now, who's journeying? It's not just a lone Israelite with his knapsack journeying toward the great city, but he's actually in a caravan, a company of worshipers. He's with other Israelites and as they are traveling, what happens? The leader is speaking, and then the people are responding. There's a liturgy happening. There's a dialogical corporate nature to the psalm, because as the psalmist was going, he was not going by himself. And so he would say unto the people in verse 1 and 2, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. And then the people would respond, behold, the Lord is your keeper. He doesn't sleep. Behold, the Lord will guard your footsteps. Now, I mentioned this, the structure of the psalm, because it says something very important for Christians. It means this. The way we worship, it's not just as individual people, but as a corporate community. And embedded into our worship is not only a vertical nature, everything is for God, yes it is, but a horizontal nature. We are building one another up. We are edifying one another. We are encouraging one another. You see, when the psalmist was declaring these things, the people would respond a truth back to him, building him up, encouraging him of truth. You know, unfortunately for us modern people, when we gather to worship, we focus merely on ourselves. How many of you, be honest, had a preoccupation with how blessed you would be or what you would get out of this or the kind of experience you would have when you came into service today? We think worship is an encounter between me and God and the people around me just happen to be here as well. But that's not what's happening. We are worshiping together as one body and God is meeting us here as one body. And it's important to recognize this because much like the Israelites, we are also on a pilgrimage. We're on a journey toward the new Jerusalem and along the way, we need to speak and encourage one another. There are many times in the worship service when we're singing and I just fall silent. 
Now, sometimes it's because the key of the song is so high and I can't keep up. But most of the time, it's because as I stay silent, I hear the voice of our members singing. And it's not that I don't want to worship, but in that moment, the voices of everybody else around me singing and reciting and speaking actually helps me worship. Right? In those moments, God actually ministers to me through the voice and confession of others. How many of you have experienced something like this? If so, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If not, I'm jealous that you would experience this soon. Sometimes, close your eyes and you let the Holy Spirit encourage you through the faith of others. You see, friends, you cannot be on the journey of faith alone. Many of you have tried. It's just about you and God, but you may have come to church alone, but you cannot worship alone. The church is the choir, and its members are its preachers. You sing, and you receive. You preach, and you listen, and you're built up by the voice of others. But here's a corollary truth. This also means there are times that others need you to recite, confess, speak, and sing loudly and boldly. Because worship is not about you and God, but you and God and the people he's gathered. There are times, you have to know this, friends, because there are times that you've walked through this door and you've had a bad day. You've had a really awful week. You're reconciled. That means that's true of somebody else. And so some days you walk in and life is good. It's Sunday. It's bright outside. The weather is nice finally. But the people next to you are coming in through the doors beaten, battered, and bruised from the things of life. They barely made it into the pews that Sunday. Wrestling, struggling, torn up inside. And what do they need? Sometimes when their faith is weak that morning, they need to lean on the strength, on the faith of the community of God. They need to hear the conviction as you sing. Sometimes God can use that. Use your gusto and your conviction to lift others up on eagles' wings. Friends, God doesn't need you to sing loudly as if he's hard of hearing. He can hear fine just from heaven. But maybe it's your neighbor, this present company and this caravan of worshipers that need you to testify, need you to witness they need you to lift up your voice so that when they feel they have none to lift up, they can ride on the wings of yours. You see, Psalm 121 is teaching us how to say the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your, not just the Lord is my keeper, the Lord is your keeper. What might it look like if our church actually began to practice this? What kind of robust church would we have if people not only believed truths for themselves, but they sang like they believed it and they confessed like they believed it? In what ways would we be built up? And what kind of spiritual health would we begin to cultivate? That's the first point. We need to learn to say the Lord is your keeper. But here's the second point. We need to believe the Lord is your keeper. We need to actually believe it. So what do we mean by, well, we already said the word keeper in Hebrew can also be translated as guardian or protector or watcher. Now, what Psalm 121 is saying is that the Lord is our guard, our guardian. 
you know, we don't need a guardian angel. There's a big obsession with guardian angels and do you know their names? And is it Michael or Lawrence or, you know, but we don't need a guardian angel because we have a guardian God. The God who watches us and protects us, keeps track of our steps. That's what verse three says. He will not let your foot be moved. Now that meant something to the journey, journeymen, to, to the travelers, because on your way to Jerusalem, the journey, the road was arduous. It was dangerous. It was hard. The roads were in no good condition. Ancient roads weren't smoothed over. The potholes weren't fixed. They weren't paved. So it made travel really difficult, really dangerous. I mean, we live in a time where we, you know, there's inconveniences in the road, but we don't really experience that. You know, I moved to Philadelphia uh, 15 years ago, and since I've moved here, there has not been a single year where some major road is under construction. I mean, when I moved here 15 years ago, it was 309, now it's 202, and I'm like, you know, the psalm is like, how long, oh Lord, when will this be over? And, and the thing is, they're always constantly fixing the roads. Why? It's actually a sign that we live in great luxury and privilege. They're smoothing out the roads, and they're creating better efficiency, and they're making the roads better. But none of that was true in the ancient times. There was no public works department. There were no road crews. And so if you were in a caravan headed out to Jerusalem, there was a good chance that you would slip and fall and hurt your ankle. There's a good chance that your wagon would slip over and fall and break. There's a good chance that your donkey might take a stumble. Now, the psalmist uses this because this is a metaphor for life, isn't it? The paths that we traverse are full of unknowns and uncertainties. It's easy to get hurt and harmed along the way in life. But the psalmist encourages us by saying, God preserves your footsteps in such a way that you will never fall to your peril. You will never slip out of his will. Now, some of you in here are saying, I've made some bad mistakes, but friends, you need to know this. Your missteps are never out of line with his steps. Yes, you may think that I've fallen off the path. I've gone so far. I've fallen over. I've broken my ankle. But the psalm is saying to us, it's that the Lord watches over every footstep. He will lead you and he will guide you so that your steps are sure and steady. Now, here's the interesting thing. Psalm 3 needs to be read in conjunction with, uh, verse 3 needs to be read in conjunction with verse 8. So verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. But verse 8 then goes on to say, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Verse 3 is saying God watches your footsteps. Verse 8 saying he watches your going out and your coming in, your direction and your destination. What good is it for God to watch your footsteps if your footsteps lead you over a cliff? So God doesn't just lead your footsteps, but leads your direction and destination. Psalm 37 preaches to us, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. Dear friends, God will keep you from falling and failing. Now, does that mean in life you will tumble, you will stumble, you will wobble and teeter, lose your balance? Absolutely, you're, you will. But when your foot touches the ground, it will be stable and sure for the Lord watches over your steps. The psalmist goes on. At the end of verse 3 into verse 4 saying, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Behold, pay attention to this. There's good news that God doesn't sleep. Now, when you and I don't sleep, we are tired throughout the day. We're slow and sluggish. We're irritable and we get easily annoyed. But God is not like that. God who does not slumber is not perpetually tired. 
Always rubbing his eyes to stay awake or yawning. He was awake and alert. Have you ever pulled an all-nighter? When's the last time you pulled one of those? And some of you have. Some of you can. You can pull an all-nighter if you need to. Some of the youth group students who were at the retreat yesterday pulled an all-nighter. But you know what? Pull one all-nighter. Can you pull a second? Now, some of you are youthful enough that you can or stubborn enough that you can. Can you pull a third day or a fourth day? And you can't keep living like this because in the end, the reality is we are finite creatures. At best, you and I can delay sleep. Drinking some coffee, taking an energy drink, popping caffeine pill, going outside when it's cold, turning up the music loud. But here's the thing. In the end, your creatureliness always wins. It always wins, and yet there's good news. The good news that you belong to the one who never sleeps nor slumbers. He never nods off. He never dozes. You never need to nudge him. And that means this. When you call upon him, he is always listening, always attentive, ready to hear. There's a great showdown story in 1 Kings 18, the prophet Elijah facing the prophets of Baal and Asherah. You may know the story. They're out. They're on Mount Carmel. The stage is set. Sacrifice on a pit. Who can get this thing on fire? So the prophets of Baal start praying and wailing and cutting themselves and letting blood out try to appease the gods, and there is nothing. And if you've ever wondered if mocking is biblical, Elijah stands up, and he says in verse 27, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. They cry out and call out, and there is no answer their God is sleeping. But yet when Elijah calls out, fire comes from the heaven and consumes not only the sacrifice, but the logs and the water around. The Lord immediately sends fire. How? Because he is a God who does not sleep nor slumber. He is attentive to the needs of his people, ready and poised to act for our good and his glory. He's attentive. The second truth there means that God also keeps the world running when you go to bed. He doesn't take time off. He doesn't need PTO. God doesn't need a sabbatical. And even when you rest your head to sleep, he keeps your world running and he keeps your life together. Some of you have a hard time sleeping because you're full of anxiety. Some of you let the troubles of tomorrow weigh you down this evening. and You cannot sleep. Your mind cannot shut off. It is racing with questions and problems and what-ifs and hypotheticals. But as one preacher said, if God doesn't sleep, why are you up tossing and turning? Let him do his job. And it works like this. Some of you in this room are expecting parents. And some of you have had young children. But something that's relatable to all of us, we were all infants once. We all wailed and cried late into the night and early into the morning. We all woke up our parents in the middle of the night demanding to be fed. And then we all woke up our parents in the middle of the night demanding to be changed. And here's the thing. Every single one of you, you gave your creaturely parents sleepless nights. And yet even they, in their sleep-deprived, sleep-dependent nature, they were able to keep you. 
to protect you, guide you, guard you, care for you, love you, watch over you. How much safer are we in the arms of the one who never sleeps? Whose eyes never grow tired? Whose alertness never grows dull? Whose response never gets slow? See, friends, our need for sleep is God's reminder of our creatureliness. But then our obedience of sleeping is an act of faith when we close our eyes, take our hands off the reins of our lives, and trust that God will keep us. Psalms continues, verse 5 and 6, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, you have to know something about what it means to be out in the heat to know exactly what this means. We've experienced some of that here in Philadelphia. Some of you have played in the uh, interchurch softball tournament out in July out at Mondock Park where the sun is beating down on you. Now, imagine the Middle Eastern sun. It's scorching. It's blazing. And if you've been under that kind of heat, your first thought is to escape it. You're looking for shade and shelter. You're looking for something that will give you relief from all that is zapping you of energy and strength. And God, interestingly, calls you your shade. He is your shade. Now, what does that mean? I think there are at least two things we can pull out from this. The first is this. The first thing about shade. Shade doesn't remove the sun. It only blocks out the sun. Shade doesn't remove the sun. It only blocks out the sun. You see, God doesn't promise to get rid of the sun or its beaming rays. He promises that when the sun is hot and bright, it will not strike you by day. It will not overwhelm you. You will not grow faint and weary hearted under it. You will not suffer the harm of heat stroke nor dehydration from the intense humidity. You know, many times in life, when things get really, really hard, when we're suffering, when there are obstacles, we just wish God would remove the sun. It's uncomfortable. It, it, it's, it's upsetting. We just want God to take away what's difficult. We want him to get rid of what's painful and scary. We want him to get, a, to get rid of the thorn in the side, Paul would call it. But that's not what God promises, is it? God doesn't promise to get rid of the sun, but to provide relief and rest from its dangers and harm. God promises refuge from under it. And this is his promise to you. Listen carefully. God's faithfulness isn't found in what he takes away, but in what he provides. His faithfulness isn't determined on, God, why aren't you removing these things out of my life? His faithfulness is seen in, God, you are supplying these things in the midst of the blazing hot heat. Some of you can attest to this. Hard and harsh things come your way. God's faithfulness isn't found in removing that, but in supplying you a community of faith, family, friends who walk alongside you through it. Some of you experience this. Life gets tough. But he supplies you with the promises and the comfort and the assurances of his word. Some of you experience this where life is lonely. But God draws ever nearer to you by his spirit to be your comfort and your help. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Now, the second thing about the way this metaphor works is this. In order for you to enjoy the benefit of shade, shade is blocking something from hitting you only because something is hitting it. Listen to that. 
whatever's providing the shade absorbs the heat. It takes the hit. The psalmist says in verse six, the sun shall not strike you by day. Why won't the sun strike you? Well, because it's striking something else. You know, the hottest place I've ever been to in my life was Haiti in the middle of July for a short-term mission trip. Uh, I went right after the earthquake in 2010. And so Port-au-Prince was in an absolute mess. And if you've ever been there or been in that kind of region near the equator, you know how hot it is. You can't do ministry after the morning and before the early evening. So in the middle of the day, everything just stops. You have to take a rest. It's simply too hot. And I remember, you know, we would be doing our ministry work. And as soon as it got too hot, they would call us in. And we'd come under these makeshift structures of huge, large sheets of metal. Just these makeshift refuges. And it was cool and bearable underneath. But if your skin touched the metal on the top, if your hand accidentally fell on top of that, you would be burned. It was way too hot. Why? Because in order to protect you against the heat and give you shade, the metal absorbed the heat from the sun. What is the psalmist saying here? The only way you can enjoy shade, the shade that God gives you from the sun is because something else is struck by it in its place. The psalmist here is alerting us. He's pointing us, getting us to edge off our seats and yearn a little bit more for what's to come. What is he talking about? The glorious and humbling truth that God substitutes himself in your place. God chooses to be struck by the sun so you won't have to. Why does he do this? So the promise of verse seven might be yours. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The reason God is able to keep you from all evil, from ultimate evil befalling you and consuming you is because God has faced your greatest evil and he's conquered it. You see, the greatest evil, what is it? We know it's sin, sin that kills sin that destroys, sin that harms. Sin is the great threat. It's the great evil. And yet, sadly, sin lives inside of you and me. We sin. We have sin. We are sinful. The question is, how can God destroy sin without first destroying you? How can God take care of evil without first eliminating you? The way that God keeps us from evil and the way that he keeps our lives is that he sent his son Jesus into the world to take on your great evil, to take on your sin and put it upon himself. How can you keep your life? How can you keep your life when Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death? Well, he does it by sending his son to die in your place, to take the punishment you deserve, the curse he absorbed in your place so that through his death, you might have life and you might have it eternally. This is the good news of the gospel. You are kept and preserved because there was one abandoned and forsaken. It's through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ that evil, the evil of sin has no more power to destroy, to harm, or to kill. See, friends, Christ is the evidence that God will keep you at all costs. Christ is the evidence that God will guard you and keep you and protect you and watch over you. And why is this good news? Why is this good news you must know? Let me wrap up like this. Because we are all on a pilgrimage, each one of us. 
like the Israelite travelers, were journeying through this life headed toward a heavenly Jerusalem. When the path looks narrow and the cliffs look dangerously steep, your keeper will not let your foot be moved. When it's night and it's frightening because the wild animals surround you and their howls, your keeper does not sleep nor slumber. When it's day and the sun seems too hot to bear anymore, your keeper will be your shade on your right hand. When evil lurks around you and you find it inside you, threatening in menace, condemning you in guilt, your keeper will keep you from all evil. When death crouches at its door and you know it'll soon walk in, your keeper preserves your life into eternity. When you feel lost on the journey, unsure of where to go next, your keeper has his eye on your going out and your coming in. Dear friends, the Lord is your keeper. He has kept you for himself. And the gospel is our great assurance of that. Might we believe it for ourselves and encourage one another with it. Let's pray.